Welcome to the Peds Hub Pod, an educational podcast created by paediatric trainees in the Southwest, featuring reviews of journal articles and interviews with authors and specialists. Please note, these are our own opinions and do not substitute professional medical advice. Thanks for listening. Hi all, welcome to the December episode and it's so lovely to see both of you in person. So Leila and Felicity are both here for a change. Hi Paulina, lovely to see you. It's so nice that we're all in the same room. I can't remember that actually the last time it's happened despite <laughs> working at the same hospital. <laughs> this is our Christmas special. So we're doing something a little bit different today. We're going to share our 12 articles of Christmas. That's 12 articles that you may have missed during the year that we think are worth a read. We're just signposting to the articles rather than discussing them in depth. So if you'd like to read more, the references are in the show notes. So on to the first article. Can I go first? Yeah, yes. please do. Number one. So I have, we, we've kind of divided them uh, fairly arbitrarily, but I have picked the Education and Practice Journal. We don't do as many of those reviews in our articles because they're not normally sort of full research things, but I love that journal. I don't know what you about you guys. I love all the pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of the articles are really short. You just get a key point. You've got some photos. It's just, yeah, it works with my brain. Um, so <laughs> I have focused on those ones. So I've chosen an article from Pickett called Early Switch of IV to oral antibiotic therapy in clinically well neonates with a probable bacterial infection is as effective as a full course of IV antibiotic therapy. And just the title grabbed me because this is the kind of stuff that we have to deal with every day on the postnatal ward. These babies that we're screening for early onset sepsis. So I won't go into huge detail, but this was done in the Netherlands. So they took 510 infants uh, and they had to be greater than 35 weeks, greater than two kilos and have our standard early onset sepsis picture. So raised CRP or procalcitonin plus either maternal risk factor or some kind of clinical symptom. So our population. And they switched half of the group between 48 and 72 hours to oral antibiotics. And excitingly, they didn't notice any significant difference in the outcomes of these babies. The primary outcome was the cumulative bacterial reinfection within 28 days after treatment completion. So that's really exciting news that there was no significant difference. They did break it down a bit and they said there were some readmissions for like bronchiolitis, some for viral meningitis, uh, and there were two babies that they did put back on IV antibiotics because they had a temperature but it didn't create a significant difference. And they naturally all got to go home a lot earlier, which makes a big difference for the parents. So the paper referred to lower-income countries having accumulated a fair bit of evidence for this, but the higher-income countries, this is one of the first studies in that. But what they have said, you know, as, as flaws, these are babies who are quite well, and they are culture-negative. And so there is a bit of an argument to say, did they need any antibiotics um that's interesting would we have actually have stopped the antibiotics anyway well it depends on the hospital because they used a crp cutoff rate of greater than or equal to 10 mm -hmm. so a lot of hospitals use that 
that some hospitals do like, okay, we'll stop the antibiotics when the CRP is less than six. You know, there's quite a lot of variability. And I suppose, actually, in previous places I've worked, if you did have a raised CRP, you'd also be doing a lumbar puncture. So you wouldn't often have the CRP, um, sorry, the CSF results back by 48 hours. You're yeah. still waiting for the culture results. So those babies would be continuing on IVs. And were these patients, did you say that they were term babies? Yeah, so greater than 35 weeks. Um, so they're the ones that would be nursed on the postnatal ward. Um, and they were allowed to have clinical symptoms, but at the point of switching to oral, they had to be clinically well in themselves. But yeah, read, uh, read more about it. Who wants to go next? Number two. The next article is Invasive Bacterial Infection in Children with Fever and Petechial Rash in the Emergency Department, a National Prospective Observational Study, and this is a journal article from ADC. It's a multi-centre prospective study which was looking to ascertain the incidence and predictors of invasive bacterial infection in well-looking children who attend the emergency department with a fever and a petechial rash. Oh, that's a really good one to choose. Basically every 1am presentation. <laughs> yeah. um, so they recruited 688 patients, of which 10 had invasive bacterial infections, so 1.5%, which is a lower figure than I anticipated for children with fever and a particular rash. Of those, 8 had meningococcal disease. What country was that in? It's in Spain. Oh, Okay. That's a lot higher than UK. I think we're down to like one in 100,000 of meningococcal disease now. So they found that those with invasive bacterial infections had a shorter time between fever to presenting to the emergency department. And there was a shorter time between the fever onset and the rash starting. So a difference of 3.5 hours compared to 24 hours. And f fever first, rash second. Yeah, and it was that the time between them yeah. was short. Yeah, okay. Good to know. Leila, you're up next. Number three. So I've taken this next article from the ADC Fetal and Neonatal Edition. And I the article is titled Apnea Triggered Increase in Fraction of Inspired Oxygen in Preterm Infants a randomised crossover study. So one thing I love about the study is that it's an interventional crossover study, which means that the 35 infants that were included were exposed to both arms of the intervention. So that was whether there was an automated control algorithm which gave a preemptive apnea-triggered boost in FiO2 to, to the infants when they'd had an apnea. And they'd found that this reduced the post-apnea hypoxemia that these infants experienced, but then they did note that this led to a greater overshoot in the oxygen levels. So I just think this is really interesting in terms of ways in which we, we can manage those apneas. And again, thinking about the anxiety that that can induce for parents. Um, and, and I don't have the data for kind of the longer term effects of that, but it's just interesting that it's not something that I was aware of being done before. So just encouraging people to read a little bit more about it. Number four. Um, so mine is, again, from education and practice. Uh, you can see a theme. Um, 
And I have gone for one of the learning and teaching articles called Parents' Attitudes to Medical Education on Pediatric Ward Rounds. So they did a mixed methods descriptive study uh, with 100 semi-structured interviews. Um, That's quite a lot for interviews. Yeah, yeah. And they they had really good feedback. And basically, uh, overwhelmingly, the parents were very happy with the education. And they, you know, as long as it didn't interfere with their child's, with their child's care... Uh, and it didn't make the child uncomfortable, and they felt that they had the choice, um, then they were all happy. I mean, that's a massive summary of all of the different findings there. But yeah, it's an interesting one to read. Yeah, from experience, I find that parents often just really want to help yeah. and feel like they're contributing. But also, I sometimes find it opens up conversations more and it allows parents to ask more questions. Yeah, and I think oh, they understand. Absolutely. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. And I, I think the thing that I really value with articles like this is that somewhat reassurance that someone's systematically looked at this yes and of course you know everyone's opinion is going to vary and you know it's judged on a case-by-case basis but but having something to know parents generally don't feel like this is taking away from their care and i think that's a really nice thing to know number five so my next article is also from adc and it's Ethnic Differences and Inequities in Paediatric Healthcare Utilisation in the UK, a scoping review. So the author of this study reviewed the evidence and then they make recommendations of how research in this area can be improved to make it more valid, generalisable and comparable. They describe limited data on outpatient and emergency care, and they describe parent-caregiver ethnicity as being largely overlooked. So it's definitely worth a read. That's really interesting. And again, with the scoping review capturing lots of different studies for that conclusion to be drawn, it it does highlight actually the importance of thinking about um, effects of ethnicity and wider background factors. Number six. So my next article is a little bit different. This one stood out to me. It's titled Clinical Value of Placental Examination for Paediatricians. I mean, to start with, that's just a, you know, I have never done that. Have you? Well, I mean, I've seen lots of midwives looking at placentas. And I think, you know, there's a few things in terms of like hearing about classifications and a couple of points, but I've not delved into understanding, you know, what, what this can tell us. So this article does a really good job of that in that it's quite descriptive, tells the reader about firstly what a normal placenta looks like, but then they go into some pathologies and they note that there are several uh, pathologies that can be identified that are linked to both neonatal outcomes, but also uh, outcomes that could have implications for future pregnancies. And uh, whether this is opaque membrane suggested of chorioamnitis or the uh, knots or coiling that can happen in the umbilical cord. And I just found it really interesting and it's got really great descriptive pictures. And then it also kind of goes on to talk a little bit about uh, the guidelines released by the Royal College of Pathologists, which shows the clinical indications for when placenta should be sent for histological examination. So I very much recommend a read. Number seven. So my... Next one is from Pickett in EMP, uh, and it's called Infants Reported for Maltreatment Had an Increased Risk of Death from Medical Causes. Uh, And again, I think massively relevant for the general paediatrician. We're worried about the child having an injury, um, and we do our medical report, 
and then we discharge them to social care. Uh, and this article was just highlighting that actually they're at higher risk from any medical cause as well if they have been seen from a child's protection perspective. I mean, it raises the issue, do we need to do medical follow-up for these children, even after a report? Because these children are likely to come from backgrounds where perhaps there's some neglect as well. Maybe their social situation, their housing isn't ideal. So it's said that they're at higher risk of things like respiratory disease, infectious disease uh, and circulatory disease. So things that we could have an intervention on. I think we see that a lot, particularly with young people with asthma. Yeah, yeah. Presentations or yep. not keeping up with using um, preventative inhalers. Yeah. This is also a nice reminder for us to think about our safety netting um, and yeah. measures to come in. And I suppose you're saying perhaps there's other factors involved in, you know, the decision to present. And it's important for us to be mindful of those. I suppose it's also highlights about information sharing and making yeah. sure that if we have a young person where we have safeguarding concerns, that we are just following up in terms of making sure the health visitor and GP yeah. and uh, uh, broadly all the professionals involved in the care of that child are aware of their other medical conditions. I know in our team we've got some specialist nurses who are aware of when parents are picking up the medication. So they know if they haven't picked the medication up in the right time frame, which suggests that they're not giving the medication to the parents. And they follow up really closely on them. But I don't think all teams have that luxury. So again, perhaps a reason for having that outpatient follow-up, even if it's just the one follow-up, just to touch base with them a few months after the event. Number eight. So up next, we have the association between breastfeeding duration and educational achievement in England, results from the Millennium Cohort Study. So those of us who've worked in UNICEF baby-friendly gold centres would have had lots of teaching on infant feeding and are aware of the benefits of breastfeeding. I think it's also really important to acknowledge that for some women who would like to breastfeed, it can be really challenging and it's not always possible. That being said, this study included data from 5,000 children and it suggests that after controlling for confounding factors, breastfeeding for longer was associated with improvements in GCSE results. Mm. Also really interesting, again, because I think about when I talk about breastfeeding, it's often about the kind of immediate short-term benefits and then some of the kind of more, I guess, gut microbiome and uh, autoimmune disease But then thinking about the social implications and other measures of neurocognitive development is really interesting. Number nine. The next article I wanted to talk about was titled Parenting, Stress and Health-Related Quality of Life Among Parents of Extremely Preterm Born Early Adolescents in England, a cross-sectional study. So this is an evaluation of a longitudinal uh, population-based birth cohort in England, and it's titled the Epicure 2 Study. So this was to look at whether extremely preterm infants defined as less than 27 weeks gestation in comparison to a control group of infants born at term over 37 weeks had any effects on parents' experiences of quality of life and stress being one of those. So this was a study that used a questionnaire to look at the physical and mental health related quality of life scores 
for parents in both groups. Most of the parents who were included in the study were mothers, and I think that's something that's commonly seen in kind of follow-up studies of parents. But there was a conclusion drawn that in uh, these young people, once they're in early adolescence, the experiences of the parents of those children who are born extremely prematurely report increased levels of parenting stress and that is related with lower mental health rate of quality of life. And I think it's really important that we're aware of this and I think it's important to note as well that correlation doesn't always mean causation and mm. you know there's a lot of details about the way in which the study was conducted and, and the limiting factors but also the implications which I would encourage uh, anyone who's interested to, to go and read the article but I think it's just a reminder again of the effect that ill health or just contact with the medical system can have on the wider family dynamic and that's something that's kind of close to my heart in practice so I, I yeah think it's a valuable study. Do they hypothesise the reason for the high levels of stress? That's a really good question. So there are some details included in the study and in terms of kind of contact with the health system and kind of a lot of the complications that we know are associated with extreme prematurity. But I will leave for people to kind of go in and and read some of those in depth because I think, again, it's something that, that we probably have all got a lot of ideas of those effects on the family dynamics. Number 10. So the next study from ADC is social communication skill attainment in babies born during the COVID-19 pandemic, a birth cohort study. So in this study, the authors looked at 10 developmental milestones, which were reported by parents at one year assessments in a cohort of just over 300 babies born at the start of the pandemic and then they compared it to a historical birth cohort. Now the authors of this study do acknowledge limitations but overall suggest that babies born during the COVID-19 pandemic appear to have lower social communication skill attainment. Now they were really hopeful that children being resilient skills will catch up but it does have the potential to impact the young children that we are assessing. Oh that's interesting. I hope they do a follow-up with a you know longer term it would be interesting, given that they're hypothesising that yeah. skills will catch up. It would yeah. be interesting to see what the final outcome is. Yeah. I also think it's important to note that this is really topical, right? And it's something that I imagine a lot of parents would relate to and, and tell us. And again, the value of these birth cohort studies in, in pooling together a larger proportion and allowing us to have those conversations in an evidence-based manner is really valuable. Although I think they'll like it more if we say, don't worry. They'll be catch up. <laughs> I know. But again, as you say, those further follow-up studies and, and looking at the, the longer-term effects and perhaps some of the mitigating factors around this as well will be really interesting. So all hope is not lost and there's good... Watch this space. Watch this space, exactly. <laughs> Number 11. I'm a huge fan of this next article, which is titled Paediatric Intensive Care Admissions of preterm children born less than 32 weeks gestation, a national retrospective cohort study using data linkage. So this used two huge databases, the National Neonatal Research Database and the Paediatric Intensive Care Audit Network dataset. Uh, And this covers all neonatal units and PICUs in England and Wales, which is over 40,000 children. That is huge. It's huge. It's an incredible piece of work. So 
they looked at follow-up of these children who were discharged home from the neonatal unit and then the outcome measure was at least one admission to PICU after discharge. So they found that the percentage of children with an unplanned PICU admission varied by gestation, which is not surprising. And this varied from 10.2% of children born less than 24 weeks gestation to 3.3% for those born at 31 weeks. Um, And then the odds ratio and and risk of admission uh, then kind of tailed off with increasing gestation age. Other factors that contributed to risk of admission were a a child being of male sex, um, having bronchopulmonary dysplasia, necrotizing enterocolitis requiring surgery and brain injury. Hmm. So I think that's just, uh, again, you know, some of the things that that we expect. I think the numbers perhaps might have been slightly different to, to what I thought. And I think this is something that is really interesting in discussion with colleagues in both the pediatric and neonatal intensive care settings. I would have guessed more in, would be admitted. I wouldn't necessarily, because they're going from less than 32 weeks. And I think a lot of the children that I've seen have been more in the less, is around the 24-week category. Yeah, oh, but there was 10% was less than 24 weeks. That's actually quite a small number. But Yeah, and, and I think, so I've, quite fortunate, and this feels relevant to, to recent experience in that I've spent the last six months in a tertiary neonatal unit, and again, particularly when you're thinking about these extremely preterm infants in terms of, you know, directions of care and, and the intensive nature of our interventions and, and what that looks like for, for effects further down the line. And again, I think just having this pooled data using data linkage from multiple data sets and across such a large cohort is really valuable when you're thinking about those discussions with parents and with different parts of the service in terms of outcomes and and you know what what that journey is going to look like for, for that child and their family i know that the british association of perinatal medicine guidance changed reasonably recently in the last few years didn't it regarding the resuscitation of extremely preterm infants so from potentially 22 weeks from a case-by-case basis what year was this cohort of data what when were they looking at these data sets were from the start of 2013 to 2018. Um, and I think the guidelines that you're talking about were published in 2019. So yes, I, I think it's probably the case that, that there might have been a slight change now that we are mm. able to support those born less than 24 weeks, you know, 22 weeks through and their risk of a PICU admission might be higher and and that kind of fits in the trends that we saw with the gestation ages. And number 12. So for my last article, uh, I picked one of the epilogues from Education Practice. I love these little photo ones and this fits in very well with my current job, Infectious Diseases. And so it's called An Ulcerated Lesion in a Previously Well Child. And it shows a photo of what I would say is a fairly innocuous looking scab. You know, the kind that's a few days in that someone's picked up for a bit on this child. However, the difference is that they they had a five month history of that lesion. And importantly, they were from Iraq. 
So it's actually a leishmaniasis ulcer. And in the infectious diseases, we all get quite excited about leishmaniasis. I've been doing a lot more reading about it recently. So I would just direct you towards this epilogue, just to have a little look at that photograph and just have it in your differential for those patients that are coming from other countries. In Bristol at the moment, uh, I've been seeing a lot of refugees in our clinics. So yes, not so much a tropical disease anymore. Mm. And how did they confirm it? They did a skin punch biopsy and the histology showed Leishman Donovan bodies. Mm, interesting. Thank you. So this ties in quite nicely because I really wanted to rave about my current favourite podcast. Um, I don't know if I should be making publicity for medical podcasts, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm currently obsessed with This Podcast Will Kill You. It is massively improving my infectious diseases knowledge and it's really easy listening. Have either of you listened to it? No. Is it just infectious diseases? Like? No, uh, it's loads of different conditions. It's not even paediatric specific, but they're just two really intelligent, but also fun women chatting through it. I think they're called Erin and Erin. And they also talk you through the history of the disease, which I love. Like it just really makes it sink in that bit better and, you know, the process for discovery. So yeah, I would highly recommend that one if you haven't listened to it. So my favourite podcast at the moment is How to Fail by Elizabeth Day. How to Fail. Yeah, I okay. really love it. She invites on guests and they have a general discussion, but then they talk through three of their life failures and just has this amazing attitude that failure is actually just data acquisition. <laughs> Which I, love I like that. Yeah, yeah. and... And this idea that actually you can't innovate, you can't be creative, you can't make positive change without failing. You yeah. need to fail to be able to improve. Can I tell you guys about a book that I've read recently? I found quite impactful. So it's called War Doctor by David Knott. And I think it might be one of those classics that a lot of people have read. But I just valued the kind of challenges of working in a setting where there are limited resources and it's impacted my day-to-day -day practice in, in just valuing whether it's the equipment that we have for recording observations, you know, the teams that we work in and the care that we're able to deliver relies so heavily on factors that feel that are outside of our control and I just find that quite grounding. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting book. I'll have to give it a read. I have to say, when I've come back from low resource settings, uh, I do have a completely different perspective on all of our resources. Um, and I value both experiences, you know, the, the low resources make you think in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. And it actually does help coming back. But it, yeah, it makes you one, appreciate what we have to realize that we really overuse things that we have just because we can. Yeah. What's your book recommendation? Oh, well, so I listen to them as audiobooks. I'm not going to lie. And I use, I use the library services. I literally just signed up to my local library. My sister told me about it and they have audiobooks available as well. If you download the apps Libby and BorrowBox, again, these are free. So I'm not advertising, <laughs> but you get tons and tons of audiobooks for free. You just have to sometimes queue for them rather than being able to use immediately. So I think the book that has impacted me the most in the last few months, and it's it's not an easy read, but it's called Between the World and Me, uh, and it's by Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's from the perspective of a father writing to his son, an African-American father writing to his son. And I 
cannot recommend it enough. It's not super long, but it just gives you such an insight into historical as well as current experiences um, of African-Americans. And yeah, just really highly recommend it. And then more of a fiction one. I'm currently reading The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. And I'm really enjoying that one. Oh, I'm about a third of the way through. Are you? Yes. Snap! <laughs> it's really good, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm really very good. gripped. And Flex, have you got a book recommendation? I found it really hard to choose. From a medical perspective, I was thinking Growing Pains by Mike Shooter. Um, and he's a child psychiatrist and he's written a book of patient stories um, and it's about child mental health but it manages to be interesting and informative but and quite inspirational in parts okay Um, so it's not a long book but um, from a medical perspective i found that quite interesting i'm gonna add that to my reading list (laughs) yeah from fun books um oh it's very light-hearted but i am enjoying the richard osman Thursday Murder Club. Okay. Yeah. 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 Can't go wrong. And then another fiction book I've read recently is Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Oh, well, it's been really lovely hanging out with you guys today. Yes, thank you. Shall we wrap it up for the day? Absolutely. So thank you to all our listeners who've joined us, our Christmas special, where we have explored 12 articles released in 2023 and we hope you enjoy reading them as much as we have done. We'd also like to thank everyone who's contributed to the Pizza Pod. If you would like to contribute to the episodes, then please feel free to get in touch with us. The email will be in the description for this episode, and we look forward to hearing from you and wish you all a very happy and healthy 2024. Merry Christmas, guys. Oh, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Lovely to see you all and have a fabulous Christmas. That's all for this episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch via our email address, podcast at pizzahub.co.uk or via the Pizza Hub website. Equally, if you'd like to get involved, we always welcome your voices, so please do get in touch. Thanks, Thanks for listening. listening.